Well, we're going to dive into our uh, message here this morning. As you know, our, our format is we do uh, the revelation and then respond and, and respond in a variety of ways uh, a little bit later in the service. And we're in a series in Nehemiah. If you've been around, uh, you've known that. And so for the last six weeks, we've been walking through uh, this wonderful text, this wonderful story in Nehemiah. And today is the conclusion uh, of that story. It doesn't feel like we've spent enough time. There's so much more we could talk about, but we're going we're gonna to keep going. But it's a story about building hope. The story of Nehemiah is, is not just a story of rebuilding a physical structure of the wall of Jerusalem as the exiles were coming back from, from Babylon. It is that, but it is so much more than that. It is a, a spiritual renewal among the people. And so Nehemiah as a leader is giving leadership to this spiritual renewal among the people as well. And we saw right in the first week in chapter 1 the anguish of Nehemiah and how he had a heart that was broken for for the brokenness of his people, the brokenness of Jerusalem and the wall and all that that represented. And and we we talked about the fact that we all have rubble in our lives and how hope and rubble can coexist, and they so often do. We also talked uh, in this series about the fact that hope is always future-oriented. That hope always has a future focus. And that when our hope is in God, our future is always better than our past. And we talked about the fact that whenever we are in a rebuilding project in our lives, that there is always distraction and opposition. And we face that from outside, as we saw in the story of Nehemiah. We we face that even from within the family and within the church. We also face that distraction and opposition even within our own hearts and what's going on inside of us, and we'll see some of that as well today. So, in a world that is often filled with armchair quarterbacks where it's so easy to engage in issues from a distance with kind of clicks and likes and you can do it at the, in the comfort of your home behind a screen, Nehemiah is such a radically different story of how he addressed issues. I mean, he was somebody who saw a crisis who saw some things that were going on and he got involved, he, he got engaged. It wasn't from a distance, but he went personally. And Nehemiah, as we've seen throughout this story, uh, was somebody who persevered, who uh, took risks, who took a lot of abuse and challenges and faced a lot of opposition, but he stayed focused on God and his kingdom project. And the wall was comp- completed and the community of faith and hope was reestablished. Or so we think. I mean, we'll see today that it kind of leaves you hanging that it's not really the end of the story in a nice, nice, nice tight bow that you might tie up. But it's not, as I said, just a story of rebuilding the wall. It's this spiritual community that is being built as well. And Ezra and Nehemiah, as we've talked about these two books that go together, they are books that really focus on community building. And if you think about the narratives that have proceeded in in the Old Testament that you read about, you read about individual leaders like Moses and Abraham and Noah and different people like that, and David, King David. And now in Ezra and Nehemiah, it kind of takes a subtle shift and it moves into community. And it's about community and the impact of a spiritual community and what, what can happen in spiritual community. And so we've seen that uh, throughout Nehemiah. And so community building is really at the heart of these books. And we want to understand that. So Nehemiah, in community, he taught them how to worship again. We'll see that again today as he taught them how to worship in music and in song and in dance and in all kinds of wonderful expressions of worship. He taught them how to worship again in in terms of giving and of the tithe and reestablishing the tithe and how important that was 
And, and we'll see that again today. And, and to provide for the needs of the Levites and the priests and those who, who serve God's people in that way. He, he led the people in worship in teaching them how to confess and repent together. And we see that throughout this text and the importance of that, of that confession. And I want to actually have us begin in that way today. And, and so to participate in this story of Nehemiah. So I ask you to stand and I have a, I have a prayer of confession. Please stand. And, and I want us to just read this together. And so if, if this resonates with things in your heart, just join with me as we begin with confession and repentance before the Lord God. And let's read together. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we might delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Please be seated. So today we want to talk about holiness. As I see the end of Nehemiah, and you'll see soon as we look at especially chapter 13, which is going to be our primary focus today, as I've spent time in these texts, I've, I've, I have to admit, I'm sitting there looking at chapter 13 going, what is this about? This is just some weird and strange stuff. But it's, a, it's an expression of Nehemiah's desire for holiness among the people. His passion for God. God is a holy God and his passion for these people to be holy people. But what we'll see in this text and what we already know in our own lives, you've probably experienced this yourself already, is that when we think of holiness only in the context of sin management, like it's like I just got to take care of the sin in my life and I got to kind of deal with this stuff and that's what holiness is. If we think of it in that regard, then holiness becomes like whack-a-mole. Okay, how many of you remember whack-a-mole? Okay, I see those old hands. If you're under 30, you have no idea what that is. Okay, so if, you know, you go to the Saskatoon X or the Calgary Steppe or some of those midway places and there's this machine and these moles that pop up and you got this big hammer and, you do, and wherever they pop up, you just have to hit them on the head and bang, 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 bang. I used to love that game. I was very good at it. Okay, eye-hand coordination and so on and I love whack-a-mole. And, and so it's sort of this picture of holiness when it comes to sin management. It's just whack-a-mole. As soon as you kind of whack one down, then something else pops up. And it's that way in a community of people. If I, as a pastor of a church, if my role is to take care of sin management in the church, trust me, it would be like whack-a-mole all over the place. Like, I can't keep up. I can't even keep up in my own life in that way. And so we'll see that in, in many ways, this stumbling, what I often call to a stumbling transformation that is happening here in the people of Israel and that Nehemiah is trying to address in one way or another. So we'll see that. Chapter 11, I included that in our text today for those of you who are really, really big on having everything covered and not leaving anything out. So chapter 11, all I'm going to say is it gives lists of people that return from exile, and you can read it. Uh, Chapter 12 uh, is the dedication of the wall, and we see two choirs that led them in worship, and also as they sacrificed animals, and they did this according to the Hebrew covenant. As I said, they also established, reestablished the tithe 
this expression of worship for these, for these Israelite people, the giving of first fruits, the first grain of the harvest. Uh, and this was all an expression and a response to God's holiness, a people that were set apart. And so I want to just read a couple of the things of how they reestablished some of this worship that Nehemiah did, uh, beginning in this celebration. And just so read with me, and I'll look at, uh, first of all, Nehemiah 12 and verse 27. We'll just look at a few of these verses as samples. So in in verse 27, it says, For the dedication of the new wall of Jerusalem, the Levites throughout the land were asked to come to Jerusalem to assist in the ceremonies. And they were to take part in the joyous occasion with their songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. And if you go down to verse 31, Nehemiah says, I led the leaders of Judah to the top of the wall and organized two large choirs to give thanks. So Nehemiah, he has these choirs that come and they're going to just sing praise to God as they do this dedication ceremony of this wall and so he's he's teaching them how to worship again in verse 40 the two choirs that were giving thanks then proceeded to the temple of god where they took their places and then a little bit further on in verse 42 they played and sang loudly under the direction of jezrahiah the choir director and many sacrifices were offered on that joyous day for god had given the people cause for great joy the women and children also participated in the celebration and the joy of the people of jerusalem could be heard far away. And so they had this amazing celebration of worship and they had instruments and they had choirs and they had this celebration of God's goodness and God's faithfulness. And then if you keep reading in 44, they again this reestablishment of the tithe. On 44, on that day men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the offerings, the first part of the harvest and the tithes. They were responsible to collect from the fields outside the towns the portions required by the law for the priests and Levites. For all the people of Judah took joy in the priests and Levites and their work. So you are to take joy in the work of your pastors and leaders in the church. So just so you know, we're making a new covenant application here. Um, And then a little bit later on, 47, all Israel brought, brought a daily supply of food for the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Levites. The Levites, in turn, gave a portion of what they received to the priests, the descendants of Aaron. So there we see this establishment of the tithe again again nehemiah is teaching them how to worship he's rebuilding a spiritual community where they have lost their way they have forgotten these things so it's not just about the physical wall it's about how do we be a spiritual people and so he's establishing these things again and then we see in chapter 13 his final reforms and his passionate response to holiness of wanting to help these people understand that they are a holy people and he does as I said, some bizarre and even strange things as he kind of does this whack-a-mole of sin management and trying to make them a holy people. It starts in verse 1 and 3, and I'm just going to summarize these sections. You can read them because we don't have time to walk through all of them. But in verse 1 to 3 of 13, he starts by he removes the Ammonites and the Moabites because as they had been reading the law of Moses, they realized that these people did not treat the Israelite people well in the past, and they're supposed to be thrown out of the kind of the assembly. So he does. Then in verse 4 to 9, if you look at at verses 4 to 9 in that section, you realize that, I love this part, that Tobiah, he actually got a storeroom in the temple to to just kind of have his own personal belongings. Now, that means nothing to you unless you have been with us through this series and you remember that Tobiah was the biggest pain in the you-know-what to Nehemiah throughout this whole encounter. Because Tobiah was the greatest opposition to him, the greatest distraction, the greatest cause of grief and conflict that he had encountered. And Tobiah, because he was not, his name was not written in the Hebrew book 
of the family members, he was not part of this inheritance. And so, if you remember in this story, Tobiah throughout the story was always in opposition to Nehemiah. So Nehemiah now has left and he's gone back and he's not around for a while. Not exactly sure how long. And what does Tobiah do? He uses his family connections and he actually gets a storeroom in the temple for his own stuff. Like, I'm just going to sort of park it all here and use it for my own personal means. Well, you can imagine when Nehemiah comes back what he thinks of that. So you read in, those, in that section of how Nehemiah, whack-a-mole, okay? Here he goes and smacks Tobiah again and takes all of his stuff and throws it out of the storerooms and says, this is for the tithe. This is for the first fruits. This is for the grain, not for your personal stuff. And so, I'm sure he said it much harsher than that, but he said something to that effect. So then in verse 10 to 13, you'll read in that section, again, how he, people have neglected the tithe. And when they neglect the tithe, the Levites and uh, the descendants of Aaron don't have any money to live. So what do they do? They go back farming because they got to make a living. So they go back to their fields because they can't keep working at the temple because there's no way they can support their family. And he says, you people, you've forgotten to take care of these people through the tithe. And so he brings them back into Jerusalem and he gets them reestablished in the temple work and he gets people tithing again. Interesting stuff. Then in verse 14, he says, remember this good deed, O my God. Do not forget all that I have faithfully done for the temple of my God and its services. And it's like Nehemiah prays this prayer and he says, Lord, remember me. I'm trying to do good here. I'm trying to keep your people holy. I'm trying to keep everybody in line and it's exhausting. Would you remember me in this? Then in the next section, verse 15 to 22, if you read those sections, you realize that people were also breaking the the covenant of the Sabbath. They were working on the Sabbath and they were doing all kinds of things. So whack-a-mole, here goes Nehemiah again. Um, we got to take care of this. So he actually stations people outside the, the, the gates and doesn't let people come in on the Sabbath, doesn't let the merchants uh, do their thing or do trading. He says, no, 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 we got to get back to actually keeping the Sabbath people. This has got to be done right. Uh, and so he, he takes care of them in that way. And then in verse 22, in the last part, he says, remember this good deed also, my God, whack-a-mole, have compassion on me according to your great and unfailing love. And in verse 23 and 28, guess what happens? Another mole. They were intermarrying with foreign women. And so he confronts the men and he calls down curses on them and he beats them and he pulls their hair. There, that's an interesting thing. He would most likely have pulled their beards, which in that era would have been actually a sign of shame. It would be shaming them. But, I mean, the guy freaks out. Whack-a-mole. Like, I mean, he freaks out. They're intermarrying. You guys are like now marrying these other women. Even the, even the priests were doing that. And so he has to take care of these issues. And he's just got this passion for holiness as he is trying to lead these people in their stumbling transformation, and they are not getting it. Then in verse 29, again, I love his prayers. Remember them, he says now, God. And he's talking about the priests who've actually messed up. Remember, and it's sort of like a, yeah, remember them, okay? For they have defiled the priesthood and the solemn vows of the priests and the Levites. Then he says, so I purged out everything foreign and assigned tasks to the priests and Levites, making certain that each one knew his work. I also made sure that the supply of wood for the altar and the first portions of the harvest were brought at the proper times. And then he ends this wonderful account of the story of Nehemiah with this. Remember this in my favor, oh my God. I am a -a whack-a-mole expert. So, when you look at this last part of the book of holiness, or this, this book where, where Nehemiah is so passionate about these people's holiness, you, you see that 
there's all kinds of stuff that gives evidence to the fact that their hearts hadn't really been transformed. And that the work of rebuilding spiritual community is a lot more than just building some walls. They had rebuilt the temple. They had rebuilt the wall. They had reestablished people and brought the exiles back to Jerusalem and the sounding, resounding, uh, surrounding areas. They had established again some of these expressions of, of worship. But it's not working. These people are still stumbling along and messing up. And despite Ezra and Nehemiah's best efforts, while they succeeded in the physical projects, we see that their hearts were not transformed to be made holy. So in many ways, although Nehemiah might be read as, wow, what a neat success story, you see at the end that it's not really the spiritual success story that we might think it to be. So what is holiness? I've been reflecting a lot on that in this last week especially. I'm still not sure if I have a good, clear answer. But I'm going to try to give you my best efforts at understanding holiness, not just in the way that Nehemiah was thinking about it in terms of Old Covenant thinking, but what is holiness in the New Covenant as New Covenant people in Jesus Christ? Well, holiness, according to one uh, Bible encyclopedia says it's a chief attribute of God and a quality to be developed in God's people. Holiness and the adjective holy occurs more than 900 times in the Bible. And the primary word in the Old Testament that's used for holiness means to cut or to separate. So fundamentally, holiness is a cutting off or a separation from what is unclean, and it's a consecration to what is pure. And so that's one way to think about holiness. Another way to think about holiness, which I found really helpful, some of you are familiar with the the Bible Project uh, videos, which are really great videos that help teach uh, books of the Bible and different topics. And, And the one that is on holiness talks about this. It says that God is utterly unique, which is part of the meaning of holiness. And so one helpful way to think about God is to think about, uh, use the sun as a metaphor. So think about the sun as a metaphor for God's holiness. The sun is unique, it's powerful, and it radiates heat and light which is powerful and good and necessary for all life, so that you could say that the sun is holy in this metaphor. And that the area around the sun is also holy. And as you get closer to the sun, the more intense it gets as well. And so that very same intense goodness can become dangerous if you get too close to it, because it can actually annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox in God's holiness. Because God's holiness is also intense, and even dangerous. But it's not dangerous because it's bad but it's dangerous because it's so good we see this in the story of moses and the burning bush where god says to moses as he comes and he approaches the bush and he says no no no, don't come any closer stay right there and in fact he says take off your sandals because you are on holy ground and so moses covers his face and he can't even look at god because he is so close to god and as he's getting close to god he's he's feeling and experiencing the holiness of god this intense holiness of god was also seen in the temple where holiness was present in the Holy of Holies, that inner sanctuary of the temple, the Holy of Holies, that you people died when they went in there. People died when they went in there in an unworthy way because in the proximity of God, it was dangerous. And so the solution in the Bible was to become pure. We think of being morally pure, but the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, talks a lot about being ritually pure, separating yourself from anything related to death, like molds and and touching diseases or impure animals or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. These things that make you impure. Just read the book of Leviticus. 
And so if you're impure and you saunter into God's presence, people died. So God gave them the law to protect them. He gave them the law so that they would understand their impurity. And also in the law, how to become pure. And so they would follow the law, and through the sacrifice of animals, there would be a purification. But then we see, even in the prophet Isaiah, where we see something projecting to something that will come later in Jesus, where this seraphim in Isaiah 6 who comes to Isaiah, and he actually takes a hot coal and he touches it to Isaiah's mouth. And it doesn't actually destroy him. It transforms him. And he becomes holy. And so we have that image and that kind of prophetic word of what is to come. And then we see in Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, he has this image of a river coming out of the temple. Actually, it's just a trickle of water coming out of a temple. And soon it builds and it gets deeper and wider and stronger. And everything that is along it starts to come to life. And it's green and it's lush. And it brings life and light to everything. And it's this picture of the holiness of God coming out of the temple. And it's this beautiful picture. And instead of being made pure and then entering into God's presence, now God's presence makes us pure and His holiness pours out from the temple. And as we come to the New Testament, we need to realize that Jesus fulfills all these images of holiness. And now Jesus touches impure people and He makes them holy and He heals people. And Jesus is the embodiment of God's holiness. And now that God's people are the temple of God, that the temple of God is among the people, it's God's holiness is among His people and within His people by His Spirit as Jesus is in us. And so because of what Jesus has done, we become holy, not because of sacrifice or ritual or any outward actions. And it brings life and healing and hope. In fact, Jesus even uses the imagery of Ezekiel and he says, living water will flow from you. And so it's this picture of the living water and the holiness of God that flows outward. We see that again in Revelation in the last book of the Bible, the vision of John, how the whole world is being made new and complete, becoming God's temple with the river of God flowing out, removing all impurity, bringing everything back to life. Isn't that an amazing picture? So this is the new covenant, the New Testament picture of holiness where Jesus allows us to be close to God in proximity to the living God and not be destroyed, but actually be transformed. Which is why when Jesus hung on the cross and the temple curtain was torn in two and people were now able to enter into the holy of holies and not fear God. It's like we are being made holy because of what Jesus has done. So instead of being destroyed, we are transformed. This is the call of the church is to be the presence of God and to experience the love of Jesus in a way that God's holiness emanates out from us individually and corporately. I mean, just think of some of the other contrasts. We could spend so much time here thinking about the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and New Covenant. But, but one, one way is, is just think about Tobiah, our friend Tobiah again. Okay? In the Old Covenant, in Nehemiah's time, Tobiah had to figure out, okay, am I a child of, am I part of the family of God? And they looked at the records. And you see that in Ezra 2 and also Nehemiah chapter 7, where they looked at the records, and Tobiah and his family, their names were not there. So therefore, he was not part of this Hebrew family of the people of Abraham. So it's like, okay, you're not in here. Get out. And then he rebelled and caused all kinds of whack-a-mole situations. But now in the New Testament... What makes us part of God's family is the seal of the Holy Spirit. 
And when you believe in Christ, that you are identified as as His own, you're given the Holy Spirit, and God guarantees that you will get this inheritance that is promised because you've been purchased by Jesus. Just read in Ephesians 1, verse 13. It says it so clearly. It says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Him, at that time you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So now we have this guarantee of this inheritance. don't have to have our name recorded in the Hebrew book. Our name is recorded in the book of life because of what Jesus has done. N.T. Wright describes it this way, and he says the Torah, or the law of Moses at Sinai, or this old covenant, however you want to describe it, the Torah is given for a specific period of time and is then set aside. Not because it was a bad thing, now happily abolished, but because it was a good thing whose purpose had now been accomplished. And so it's important for us, even as we read Nehemiah, to understand these texts in the context of what their purpose was and now entering to the new covenant. Listen to how the author of Hebrews describes it. In Hebrews 10.1, it says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. And for this reason, it can never be, or can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. In verse 3, But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And in verse 9 of Hebrews 10, talking about Jesus, He sets aside the first to establish the second. Talking about the covenants. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. As another author says, he says it this way in thinking about the old covenant versus the new covenant. The old covenant, it's the cocoon that brought us life, light, and a kingdom that has no end. It's the backstory for the greatest story. And so this new covenant understanding of holiness is to understand Jesus' love for you and the grace that is given for you that is so extravagant that was founded on the cross as Jesus hung and died for you and was buried in a tomb and rose again and overcame death that we might have life. And he makes us holy. And it's not by our whack-a-mole experiences of sin management, but it's embracing this reality of who Jesus is and pressing into Him and being so close to Him. Now we can draw so close to God that He transforms us. And it begins to take care of those issues in our lives that we're never able to take care of in our whack-a-mole approach to them. And so holiness is so different now as we come from the New Testament. One way to think about it is this way. Old Testament holiness is defined by ritual and moral purity and separation from others. New Testament holiness is defined by moral purity by way of Jesus in us and loving engagement with others. Completely different approach. And our holiness is purely and simply because Jesus lives in us. Or as Paul often says, how we put our life in Him. But that we are so intimate and so close with Jesus, that's what makes us holy. In one of his books, uh, Andy Stanley uses this metaphor that, I've, that I like, that it's helpful for this, where he talks about Air Force One. And as you may know, Air Force One is the plane that the President of the United States flies in. But that definition is important because it's not a particular plane, actually. They have a couple of planes that they use for that same purpose. But it's whatever plane the President of the United States flies in is Air Force One. It could be a six-seater Cessna 
If that's the plane he's flying in, that is Air Force One. And so it's, it's similar in the same way. It's the Holy Spirit within us that makes us holy. It's what's inside of us that makes us holy. It's not the outward things of what we do. We are image bearers of Jesus the King. And as we are in Him and He is in us, we are being transformed and changed by His Spirit more and more into His image. So the hope, the peace, and the holiness that these Hebrew people were looking for would not be found in the rebuilding of the temple or the wall or their rituals or their sacrifice. It all failed. If holiness is sin management and a -a whack-a-mole approach to holiness, it will always fail. It's when we actually encounter Jesus and experience His love, which is why that is one of our foundational steps of discipleship, to experience the love of Jesus, it's only then that we can actually model it to other people. And that's the holiness of God flowing out from us as we come close to Jesus. And, and now we don't have to be fearful and stand at a distance like Moses. We can actually come right close into the presence of God, into the holy of holies, and allow Jesus to transform us. Another way to think about it is old covenant holiness, is, is, it's like uh, from the outside in. First of all, you had to do the right things on the outside, all the rituals, all the sacrifice, and then you could actually be pure and enter in to the holy temple. And in the New Testament, it's from the inside out. It's that holiness of Jesus in us that changes and transforms us so that we can go out into the world and bring His holiness to the nations and the families and the people of the earth, which is what the call of Abraham was right from the beginning. And so this is new covenant holiness. Not a destination, not an outward act, but this lifelong journey of walking with Jesus who transforms us more and more into his image every single day. Let's pray together. So Lord Jesus, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have fulfilled everything that we see in the story of Nehemiah. The things that Nehemiah was so struggling with to get his people to be holy and to follow your ways and to be covenant people to a holy God. And yet, Lord Jesus, you have fulfilled all of those things. And now we are new covenant people. That we don't need those outward signs. We don't need the sacrifices anymore because you have done the ultimate sacrifice. And Lord, help us to draw near to you and continue to be transformed from the inside out. And help us to be a holy people that bring the holy presence of God to this world that so desperately needs it. Transform us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.